Welcome to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Ann Keller. And I'm Hannah Levy. Our guest today is Dr. Troy Grennan. Dr. Grennan is currently the physician lead for the Provincial HIV STI Program at the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control, as well as a clinical assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of British Columbia. He completed his MD at McMaster University, internal medicine residency at the University of Toronto, and infectious disease and medical microbiology training back at McMaster. Following this, Dr. Grennan earned a CIHR Canadian HIV Trials Network postdoctoral fellowship examining human papillomavirus, HPV, in HIV-positive men who have sex with men. His research and clinical work currently focuses on HIV and STI prevention, as well as HPV and anal cancer screening, with a particular focus on men who have sex with men. He is currently co-principal investigator on the CIHR team grant, HPV screening and vaccine evaluation in HIV-positive men who have sex with men. Welcome to our show today, Dr. Grennan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just a brief roadmap for our conversation. We've split our interview into three parts. The first is a conversation about your job and yourself. And then we'll ask you to tell us the story of how you ended up as an infectious disease specialist. And then finally, we'll dig into the nitty gritty details of what it means on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. One of the reasons that we wanted to start this podcast is to get a feel for what specialties are really like beyond the description on the CARMS website, especially in this time where we are a little bit lacking in clinical exposure. So to that end, can you give us a short sales pitch or an elevator pitch for your job as an infectious disease specialist? So oh, you're asking me to speak with a short pitch. It's so hard to do. <laughs> But I'm probably going to give you the Royal College version of of this. But, you know, infectious diseases is quite broad. And it essentially deals with the diagnosis, assessment, management, prevention of a variety of organisms that cause disease on the one hand. But also a huge bulk of what infectious diseases does is detective work really, really trying to figure out undifferentiated problems. So people, they don't come in with a bug stuck on their face. You don't know exactly what's going on. So you do have to do a lot of figuring out. The other thing I'll say is that within infectious diseases, people do a lot of really niche work. There's a lot of people who do general infectious diseases, but there's a lot of people like me who do very specific to the point of almost being um, things that many people have never heard of kind of work as well. So it's really something where you can tailor the kind of work that you do and, and really focus it a little bit. All right. Well, I'll be excited to hear more details about what it is you do as we get further on into this. How do you think your personality complements your job? I work a, a lot in the area of sexual health. So that requires an ability to speak very openly about a lot of things that many people would find uncomfortable, weird, difficult to talk about. But it also requires, to do it well, you know, it also requires you to be open-minded. The way we approach in our work here in BC and in many other places where I've worked, including in Toronto and Hamilton, a lot of folks who do this kind of work take a, what we call a sex-positive approach. You know, particularly when you're working in, in a clinic that does a lot of STI screening or a lot of STI, sexually transmitted infection treatment, People are coming to you because they're having sex. And and the last thing you want to do is judge that. You have to approach this kind of work with an open mind and, and no judgment. And just realize that like 
sex happens, right? Everyone does it and that's okay. And they should, and they should have as much as they want. And, you know, within the certain parameters, right? We're doing it respectfully and making sure there's consent and all those things that we talk about. But it's really important to, to have that approach. So I think my personality, I'm pretty laid back. I think when many people think of what an infectious diseases doctor is, they think they're very cerebral, which I, I guess I am, right? I, I made it through this far, but uh, they're very cerebral, OCD, detail-oriented, and like, you know, stuffy. But I'm none of those things. I'm a little OCD sometimes. All physicians, you don't become a doctor if you're not detail-oriented. But, you know, a lot of those stereotypes just don't match up. But again, it comes back to the idea that uh, a lot of what I do is not, you know, the standard general infectious diseases work, right? It's it's a little bit different. So, you know, sexual health being one of them, and then some of the other stuff that I do. You have led us nicely into our next question for you. We like to take this opportunity to present a few stereotypes, which you have already done for us, and get the experts' opinion on what their thoughts on it. So a study of U.S. Internal medicine residents examine factors influencing the decision to pursue a fellowship in infectious disease versus a different subspecialty. The three main detractors from infectious disease were salary, a desire to be a generalist, and limited job availability. Recognizing that this was in the U.S., do you think that these concerns about careers in infectious disease generalize to Canada? It's a good question. I mean, I'll address the easier one first, the job issue. So I finished my infectious diseases training in 2011. Just thinking back around that time, the job market for infectious diseases, as well as the competitiveness of the training programs, it really does vary year by year. Around the time I applied, in the years before and after, there was a lot of variability in the interest in infectious diseases. So it seems like some years there's very little interest, and other years there was a lot. There was, so there'd be a lot of competition. So I think that's one thing. And that, that also translates into the job market. In general, I think a, a rule to think about is that it's going to be often a little harder to get jobs at large academic centers. But that's not always the case. To give you a very concrete example, when I finished my training, there were very few jobs available in Toronto academic centers, but there were actually a few jobs available in, at McMaster, which I, is where I spent, I spent a year as faculty there after I finished. So they're not that far distance-wise. They're both academic centers, tertiary care centers. Very similar in terms of uh, the demographics and clinical services they provide. And it, there was a big discrepancy there. I think if you're going out into the community and into uh, hospitals that are either satellite sites for medical schools or even just totally entirely 100% community hospitals, which are, don't exist very much anymore because so many hospitals uh, do training, uh, do education. But I think it's a, generally a bit easier, but it, it varies. So I, I wouldn't let, ever let that detract you because the good thing about doing something like infectious diseases or any of the subspecialties of internal medicine is that you're an internist. So as far as I know, there's always going to be work for internists. So I, I wouldn't let the job market detract you from there. And again, as you may know, internal medicine in, in the US is quite different from internal medicine in Canada because internists in the U.S. often do a, a big portion of their job often involves primary care and or family medicine-based stuff. So I think it's a little bit different. The desire to be a generalist, I think that, you know, that's something everyone struggles with. So I came to British Columbia about five and a half years ago, almost six years now. 
and I came from doing general infectious diseases. I was still doing at that time a little bit of internal medicine as well, not by choice, but I was doing it. And I was focused quite a bit on HIV care. And then when I moved to BC, I basically stopped doing general ID and I really just focused more on on the other thing. There's a trade-off. There's still parts of me sometimes that longs for doing some of that general ID stuff. And then there's other parts of me that are like, you know, there's a lot within all of these fields, there's a lot of the mundane in everything you do. There's always going to be a lot of mundane stuff. And those exciting things like the weird cases that get written up, those are rare. But I think the decision about being a generalist versus more of a specialist, it's uh, it's a decision everyone's going to struggle with. And you just kind of, people just need to make their own decisions about what they want to do. And then the salary, I think salaries are maybe more discrepant or there's more salary discrepancies maybe in the U.S. Infectious diseases isn't a procedure-based specialty. So it's not something that you're going to make become a million. Well, maybe you'll become a millionaire. It depends how much you, how many patients you see, but it's not really a big procedure heavy specialty. So it's probably very similar to a lot of the other non-procedure based specialties within internal medicine. But again, you know, the, there aren't huge discrepancies in, in the salaries. Usually I wouldn't, again, I, I, I don't hear a lot of, um, people choosing specialties based on salary in Canada. I think it's less of an issue here. Bottom line is do what you love. Don't worry about the money or the jobs. Just do what you love. Okay, so we want to know how you figured out that infectious diseases and specifically the HIV angle was what you loved. So take us back and tell us the story. Okay, so to this day, my mom still kind of gets angry at me for taking so long to figure out my life. So I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm not young anymore. So <laughs> I spent a few years figuring my life out before I went to medical school. So I actually did nursing. I started out thinking I wanted to do medicine. You know, when you're a kid and you want to be a doctor and you have all those photos of you as a kid with the Fisher-Price stethoscope. You know, I was one of those kids. And then I got into my undergrad and I just wasn't convinced. I just didn't know. There was so much out there. I thought I wanted to do public health related research, but then I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, maybe I need to do a little bit of clinical work to give give me some sort of street cred in in this public health world. So I did a second entry nursing program at U of T, which was a two-year thing. So I did that. And then I worked for a year in public health and at a, an HIV hospice. Then I quickly realized I didn't want to do med school. I'd always kind of had an interest in HIV. Through nursing, I worked a bit in palliative care. And I spent some time in West Africa working on a research project with a friend of mine. And so I'd always been interested in HIV care, and I kind of thought that's what I wanted to do. But before you're immersed in that world, you you have these ideas, but they're not really evidence-based, I guess, right? They're not really based on any clear idea about what you want to do. You just think you want to do it, and then you don't really have a good reason for wanting to do that. And then when I got into to medical school, I realized that ID was something I was really interested in. That's sort of how I structured my my time in medical school. However... As students going into clerkship soon, you have a a vague idea. Many people have a vague idea before they enter clerkship what they want to do. And so like for me, when it was time to choose your clerkship rotation, you you try to choose a rotation with a schedule that fits with what you think you want to do, right? So you front load all of the stuff that you're interested in so that you can do them. And then after you do those, you can go and do an elective somewhere and impress them because you already did your rotation. (laughs) And then you push off the stuff you're not interested in to the end. So that's what I did. So for me, obstetrics, gynecology, last rotation. 
not interested in it. I would never be interested in it. I did the rotation, loved it, would have applied to it. So that's just an example. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> I'm not an obstetrician or a gynecologist, but uh, you know, I really love the obstetrics part, and I love the fact that it was a lot of medicine, but also procedure based because I do like procedures. So you know, you never know. Then I got into residency again. I was I was quite sure I wanted to do infectious diseases, so I was doing some. I was doing some rotations in it, but you know, I also really loved respirology, and I never thought I'd want to do that. Anyway, so that's kind of how I got it. Again, the bottom line is that it's okay to not know. And you shouldn't be expected to really have a good idea before medical school. Even during medical school, you're not going to really get a good sense of many of these specialties in, in medical school, especially for some of the surgical ones, right? Because the, the medical students are always like pushed to the back and it's everyone fighting to do something during an OR. So it's really tough to know and it's okay to not know and to explore and to be open to having your mind changed. Again, I never would have imagined that I would have wanted to do anything other than ID. And then uh, I did these other things and was interested. How did I fall into the HPV work? During my, my residency, I was doing some work in the HIV clinic, and it, uh, I was trying to figure out a, a research project for my master's. So I was going to do a master's in clinical epidemiology after I was finished a residency, and I wanted to, I needed a project. And one of the things I was, of course, was interested in was HIV, and so what's a, an emerging issue within the field of HIV? And one of them was the increasing rates of anal cancer, particularly among men. There were a few, but very few, clinics in the country that were actually doing anal cancer screening. This is fledgling field, even now, so many unanswered questions, very similar actually to, to cervical cancer screening. So it's an HPV-related cancer. We use very similar techniques. So we do you know, cytology, so we do anal paps. And we do all of these other things that are stolen from cervical cancer screening field. But there's so many unanswered questions. Like, there aren't any big anal cancer screening programs rolled out there because there just isn't evidence for them. We just don't have the evidence. And it's also, thankfully, a very rare cancer, but much more common in those living with HIV than those the general population. So that's kind of how I, I fell into it. And then I did the training. It takes very specific training to learn how to do the screening. So thankfully, there was a clinic in Toronto that the first clinic in Canada was there. And the, the pioneer of this work in Canada is still there. So he taught me and then I, I learned. And then I, you know, when I moved to, to Vancouver, there was a clinic here as well. So I started doing that. And it just kind of became part of my research. And I had identified it for myself pretty early on. That's something I really wanted to focus on and work on just to increase the evidence base for that. You know, and that has kind of snowballed into work on HPV vaccine and sort of thing. And there have been, you know, great strides over the last few years in these areas. So, and then, of course, the area of uh, sexual health just kind of naturally fit with all of that. And uh, when, a, when a job came up out here in, in BC, I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I've always been curious about living in Vancouver. So let's give it a shot. Yeah, I just uh, applied and moved out here. Another thing I never imagined I would do. So obstetrics and gynecology, number one. Moving to Vancouver is the second one. I never thought I would, I thought it would be in Toronto and Hamilton forever. I'm going to take you back for a moment to medical school. Were there any other residency programs that you considered other than a last minute OB? Specifically wondering about something like family medicine and public health, given your interest in that field. Yeah, I did. So definitely my two contenders were internal medicine and family medicine. 
And I applied to both. I didn't apply to anything else. And I, I really did weigh the options. My interest in, in HIV care was really quite my, was my biggest interest when I was in medical school. As the two of you may know, and others may know, a lot of the HIV care that happens in large cities, and even in smaller cities, is often is done by these very specialized uh, primary care HIV physicians or the family doctors, all right? So in, in Toronto, here in Vancouver, uh, the bulk of that care and the, the bulk of the expertise lies within those primary care clinics. So it's the family doctors who know the most about all this stuff, and the ID people kind of get involved sometimes, but... It's really the, the family medicine folks who, who know this the best. So that was really one of the draws for me. So I really did strongly consider family medicine. I didn't at the time consider public health, uh, which actually it's now called public health and preventative medicine, the residency program. It's, it was called like community health back then. It was something different. But I think it's also something I didn't know that much about it at the time. I think it's for some people, it would be a great, great option to do because you do get the clinical training. Right, you can as you don't have to, but as part of that training, you can do um, family medicine to so get that clinical part, and then you get really intense, good training in, in public health to enable you to to work on things like COVID. It's not just clinical folks who do that. Really, the bulk of that work is driven, as you've probably seen from from the people who are always front and center in these briefings and that sort of thing across the country. They're always public health people. Yeah, I think uh, I hadn't considered it, but I think it's I think it's a good one to consider for for people. What was it about internal ID that went that route as opposed to the family medicine route, which you explained has most or a lot of the expertise of managing the patient population that you were interested in? Yeah, again, it was um, this interest in being able to deal with the more complex matters that fall within internal medicine specialty. I knew I wanted to be in an urban center. And in urban centers, the people who do that complex medicine are internists. If you're in an, a rural setting, it's going to be a family doctor again. So again, it, it's not a, an absolute, but I knew I wanted to do that. I was interested in, it, in the uh, complexity of the issues that came up. The other thing that really attracted me to it was almost all hospital-based training, which uh, I felt I would get a better training within acute medicine and uh, ICU and all that stuff. And I really did want to become an expert in infectious diseases. I was interested in tropical medicine. And I still am. You know, every, everyone in ID is interested in tropical medicine. One of my least favorite questions, not from medical people or not from students, but from random people I meet, is like, hey, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I doctor what kind of infectious disease i was like oh so cool like and everyone automatically jumps to the cool stuff the weird parasites and the things that you get from from traveling to various places and eating various things and you know frankly in most situations the bulk of id is not that it's if you're working in the hospital it's going to be like pneumonia and like cellulitis and diabetic foot ulcer. That's the bread and butter of infectious diseases within most settings. So, But there are really cool things within ID that a lot of people are interested in. And I did do tropical medicine training as part of my ID training. I spent two months in Peru doing a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene. It doesn't require you to be an infectious diseases doctor to do that. There were all kinds of people in my class of 30 from all over. But, you know, it does help to have that, that really intense detailed knowledge of infectious diseases was very helpful and is, is just is 
academically, it's what I was interested in. That also explains why I did, again, my mom would say it was me not being able to make up my mind, but that's also why I added on an extra year of, of training so that I could do the medical microbiology training as well, because I'm very interested in micro. I just academically, I thought, especially bacteriology and parasitology, I was just very interested in it and interested in learning those lab techniques and interested in learning you know, how one runs a lab, but also how you identify things within the lab. I just thought it was a really useful adjunct to my ID training. And, and not that I necessarily thought I ever would become sort of a strict microbiologist and not do anything else, but that has really served me well because you can't divorce the clinical work from the laboratory work and the diagnostic work. Even now, as I've been redeployed to do some COVID-related work outside of my regular job, my knowledge and my training in microbiology diagnostics has been really, really useful because I'm helping lead some of this testing work that we're doing. So it's been really useful to have these things, even if they're not directly relevant to the exact work I'm doing. So that's the other point I want to make is that don't be dissuaded from doing these things that might seem like they're extra work. So if you want to, you know, do another specialty, <laughs> just do it. If you want to go off and do some training somewhere, like just do it. You'll never, you'll never be disappointed with most of these things. And even if it's not directly relevant, it's so many of these things are useful experiences. Is there anything you wish you had known before making your decision or any advice you have for students who are currently making the decision of which specialty to choose? Hmm. Anything I'd wish I'd known. I mean, it's a tough one. In an ideal world, you would get a really good taste of multiple specialties in clerkship and in, even in residency. Medical training is all about one big decision after another, but decisions that are being made without all of the information. So that's that's what it is, right? Even like, you know, when you're applying to medical school, if you're lucky enough or smart enough to have gotten into more than one medical school, then you have to decide which one you go to. And then after that, it's like your whole life is centered around designing your training so that you get into the residency program you want to. And then you're making that decision without all of the information, right? Because it's impossible to have all the information. And then once you're in residency training, if you do subspecialty training, then you're designing everything. So I guess my advice would be as much as reasonably possible, try to get as training that is as broad as possible based on what you think you like. So for me, when I did my electives in medical school, I did everything. I knew I wanted to go to Toronto for internal medicine training. So I did all of my electives there in internal medicine. Was that fun? No, it wasn't the funnest way to do things, but I just, in my mind, I just thought that was the way to do it. I think, you know, I probably could have done a two-week block in something else, right? Like it, it wasn't so absolutely necessary. And I think that would have probably made me a bit happier. You do have to weigh that with being strategic. Some residencies are just really competitive and people feel they need to do everything in one. So it's, it's tough. But I think there was one thing I wish I'd maybe done or known is, is to make an attempt at least to broaden a little bit some of my elective time. The electives are the place where you can really design what you want to do. And it's good to keep it broad. And because you, you might end up finding something like me that you didn't know you liked. When did you know that you were really interested in research and you wanted it to be a significant component of your career? I think, well, we all have to do some research in medical school and in, um, in residency to some extent. Most residencies have a research block, so you do get exposure to it. And certainly in medical school, there's a lot of uh, focus on research a lot of the time. 
So it, it's sort of been simmering for a while. I, I wouldn't say I, I started out knowing I wanted to do a lot of research. I struggled. Within academic medicine, there's a couple of different streams. Generally, there's education or research. Those are the two that you can kind of do. I'm totally simplifying it, but those are the two main ones that you can typically do. And, uh, you know, if you're in an academic center, then you need to work in one of them. Otherwise, you don't get promoted and promotion is everything and whatever. So, but I did, you know, as I got more immersed in it, and after I finished my residency training, and I did clinical epidemiology, I realized I, I was very interested in it. At the time I was doing my clinical epi uh, masters, I was also doing a postdoc research fellowship, which was basically just my master's project, but I had extra support and funding to spend more time doing the research. So, and I was lucky enough to get a few little grants at the time, and then I got a few more grants, and then I just realized that I did enjoy the process. I hate grant writing, absolutely hate it. But um, the other stuff is fun. So fast forward to this time where I have a full-time job here. I'm, uh, you know, I, I work for the BC Center for Disease Control full-time. I do a few other little things on the side, but I, so I have to find time within my day to do the research stuff because it's, it's an expectation of my job, but it's not a part of my job formally. So it's one of those weird things. And I wouldn't call myself a full-time researcher. I dabble. But I do do some, what I think are some really cool things. And I'm excited about the projects that are going on. And uh, I don't have a ton of funding because I just don't have the time to keep applying for things. You know, I'm not in a position in my current job where I need to be doing any of this stuff. Promotion isn't that big of a deal for within the academic stream for me currently. So it's not like I'm doing it because I need to. Just very interested in it. So before I was kind of doing it, I don't know why, I don't know if I had a really good reason for doing it before. I was just kind of getting my feet wet and learning. And maybe, you know, I might have been a little directionless at that time as well with what I was doing. But now what I really do focus on is stuff that really does have practical application, but is innovative. So that's my general approach to things. If I need to be interested in it, it needs to have a very practical application to the clinical work that I'm doing. It needs to be impactful. It needs to address an issue. And so what I'm interested in now is the STI prevention, novel ways to prevent STIs. STIs are at the highest rate they've ever been. A lot of complications related to them that we're seeing. And it's directly related to the work, and I'm interested in it. So it's, it's something that, you know, you can do work in, and you see results, and it's directly applicable to the work we're doing just outside this door in our clinics. So transitioning us to the third part, we want to dig into the nitty gritty details of what you do. So if we were to follow you around starting Monday morning through the week, what would we see? I think I'm a bit of a, an anomaly because I do random things. One thing that you would see that you would be completely unimpressed with is the number of meetings I have to attend. So that is not fun. My Outlook calendar is just a mess of meetings, especially now with COVID and there's all this stuff going on. That's not always the case for, for medicine, but I'm a clinician working in a public health agency doing clinical and public health work. So I'm a bit of a weird hybrid. And so there's a lot of, <laughs> just a lot of meetings. So that's a, that's a part of it. What you would see is you would see some of the clinical work I do. So the clinical work that I do is at least once a week, sometimes twice. So for one half day or two half days, depending, I do my anal cancer screening clinic, which is at one of the hospitals here in Vancouver at St. Paul's Hospital 
we have a clinic in the surgical outpatient department, and we just see patients there who are being seen for uh, assessment of possible, not cancers really, because it's so rare, but we do see people with precancers and that sort of thing. We see them, we do this procedure called a high-resolution anoscopy, which is basically just using uh, a microscope, like the colposcopy microscopes, uh, having a look at the anal mucosa and doing biopsies and that sort of thing, and doing some treatments if, there, if we do find some precancers. And then the other clinical work I do is STI work. So we have the BC Center for Disease Control has a, a couple of clinics, and we do just sexual health work. So I work in those clinics. I also oversee the other doctors in that clinic. So I, uh, I'm involved in kind of the running of those programs. So everything from guidelines to clinical workflows and that sort of thing. So that's some of the more admin stuff. Part of that sexual health stuff, we do uh, run some HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or HIV prep clinics. Uh, and then finally, uh, every two months, I spend a bit of time going to the Yukon doing about a week, four or five days, um, ID clinics there. So the Yukon has no ID specialist. They had an ID specialist who retired a couple of years ago. It was someone who would come in from Edmonton, actually. So they didn't have a, a local ID specialist within the territory. So when that person was retiring, they needed to hire someone new in that new person is me. So I've been going to the Yukon for um, nearly two years now, uh, every two months for, again, for about four or five days. I'm the ID specialist there, but really what I do, because the family doctors there are so great with everything, that I really just do uh, very specific HIV, hepatitis C, which hepatitis C is the bulk of what I do there, and hepatitis B mostly. Those are the three main things I see in, in clinic there. And so that's part of what you would see if you uh, if you followed me around for two months. For one of those weeks during that two months, you would see me in Yukon. And then the research stuff as well. So, you know, I have a students or trainees or residents in the clinic, uh, and I have a research coordinator. So a lot of my time is spent liaising with these folks just to make sure the research stuff is ongoing, because a lot of times the research stuff is happening, and I'm it's happening, and I'm not even directly part of it, but it's study visits are happening, and they're under control. Can you tell us a bit more about what your hours look like and also if there's call involved in your role? Yeah. So in general, if you're doing general ID, you're going to be doing call and the hours are going to vary. If you're doing general ID, hospital-based general ID stuff, your hours could be long. Back when I was in Hamilton at the Hamilton General, very busy ID service there. My days would often would, would be quite long when I was on service and call was home call. So you never really had to go in. And if you had a resident on, they would take first call. So home call for ID isn't, doesn't tend to be too terrible. The occasional middle of the night wake up, but it's not usually too terrible. Currently, I do do call as part of my public health job. So I do, um, we, there's like a provincial public health call that uh, a few different doctors rotate through. I don't do it that often, maybe once every quarter. It's not bad. It's a week at a time. It's all phone-based call because it's not really site-based and it's for the province. So it's not like you would ever have to go in anywhere to do anything. But that's public health call. And then uh, currently I'm also part of my redeployment for COVID. Again, it's all because of, you know, you're an ID person, so you must know how to do infection control. So part of what I'm doing now as part of my redeployment is I'm, I'm doing some infection control work, mostly related to COVID. And so there is call for that as well. Again, it's phone-based home call. It's a week at a time. It's not particularly crazy in terms of uh, the, the number of calls. 
I'm trying to understand your public health job a little bit more. So am I. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Can you talk a bit about what your role is within the larger public health agency and maybe help give an insight to those with public health interest in terms of what your job is? It's interesting you ask that because my job and the agency where I work, a lot of people struggle to understand what it's all about because it's very unique and it's really hard to relay and explain. We're basically part of the provincial health authority. So BCCDC is, is, is a part of the Provincial Health Services Authority. So we have a provincial role. We're a provincial institution dedicated to public health. And then we also have some clinical services we provide. So we provide sexual health services. There's a tuberculosis clinic just across the building. And then there's physician leads like myself for different areas. So there's one for TB. There's one for STI for me. There's a harm reduction person a physician lead who's responsible for the opioid overdose response. There's mental health. So there's a bunch of different physician leads present. And so we're a provincial public health agency, but we also provide clinical services, which is very unusual. So that's kind of where I fit in here. I'm not public health trained. I do public health work, but my main focus is still clinical work. But by virtue of the fact that I'm working in a public health institution, I'm involved in that public health work. And, you know, part of that is, uh, you know, the STI clinical work, but all of the public health stuff that goes along with it, the contact tracing, uh, all that stuff. So that's how I kind of fit in here. So it's very, it's hard for many people to understand. And the other thing that also makes things a little bit more difficult to understand as well is that, you know, we're a provincial institution providing clinical services within a regional health authority. Just like Ontario has, you know, Toronto Public Health and Peel Region and all that stuff. And in, in BC, there are only five regional health authorities. So Vancouver, Fraser, Island, Interior, and Northern. And then there's a First Nations Health Authority, which is non-geographic, but it's a sixth health authority. And so we're, we're located in Vancouver, so we provide clinical services in Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. But we're a provincial agency. So that just adds things because Vancouver Coastal Health also has their own clinics and that sort of thing. It's a bit weird how we all fit in. And it's very difficult to understand. So, But essentially, because we do provide these clinical services in a public health institution, that's kind of where my job goes. So I'm primarily clinical, but I couldn't, I can't, escape, not that I want to, but I can't escape the public health work because it's integrated into what I do. Changing gears a little bit, what is an aspect of your job that makes you excited to go to work most days? I think one of the things that I love about what I do and about where I work is really the multidisciplinary approach to the care and the work that we do. So, you know, I work with these amazing nurses in the clinic who are experts in this area and who work very autonomously. But then I also have sort of counterparts there's my counterpart for the nursing care. We work very closely together and we just, it really does work well in terms of being able to integrate the care and integrate the type of services that we provide by having a very collaborative approach to providing this care. So the doctors and the nurses work very collaboratively. It's very non-hierarchical. So that's what I get excited about here. It makes it much easier and much more pleasurable to come to work when you love the people around you. Is there a specific clinical encounter or, or experience in your field that was particularly poignant and has really stuck with you? 
So not one in particular, but I think one of the things that I've kind of noticed over the last few years is that, and this is a good thing, the fact that over the last few years I've seen an increase, this is totally anecdotal, uh, I've seen an increase in the amount of questioning I get from patients. Patients these days, in general, are much less likely to accept things at face value without a good explanation because patients are way more informed now. Not to say that Dr. Google is a good thing, but um, it, it really does force you to, it forces you to be a bit more humble, first of all. You really need to be able to provide good justification for a lot of the stuff you're doing just because people demand it. And I think that's one of the things that really does stand out for me now. And it makes me, I think it makes me try to be a bit better. So if we were doing research on infectious disease careers, what is something you think we should know about your job or what it's like to be an infectious disease physician that we wouldn't necessarily stumble across in our research about it? There's some stuff that you can do within certain specialties that might not be obvious. You know, you might make an assumption about certain things that they're not doable within a specialty, for example. So like even just coming back to some of the work that I do, like the anal cancer screening stuff, it seems very surgical, right? And doing, you know, mucosal biopsies, like whoever thought as an infectious disease person that I would be doing that. So I guess that's the thing is like there's flexibility within each specialty that allows you to do things that might not fall within the list of things that are typically associated with that. Any final words of wisdom or advice for students who are considering a career like yours? Keep an open mind when you're going through your training. Try to get a breadth of experience that isn't necessarily all focused on the things you think you're interested in, because even if you think you're interested in something, always remember that you're making those decisions with not enough information. My last bit of advice would be two things. Travel as much as you can and get a dog. <laughs> During my medical school interview, one of my questions was, you know, how do you, what do you do for fun or how do you keep things in perspective or something, some one of those questions. Basically like the, how are you not a robot question? <laughs> I just talked about my dog for like five minutes and people were like, I think that's why I got into medical school. People were like really interested in my stories about my dog. So that's my advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Grennan. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure chatting with my, my fellow McMasterite. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Northern Exposure. To suggest a guest, send us feedback, or learn more, check out our website, northernexposurepodcast.ca. We are both students at McMaster's Michael G. DeGruy School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program, and all views expressed are ours alone. Views expressed by guests on our show are personal opinions and should not be considered representative of any hospital, university, or other organization with which they may be affiliated. Music composed by David Rubel and performed by the David Rubel Quintet. Thank you for listening.